This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, we're uh, continuing our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians 11, and we made it through verse 16. Yay! Uh, I told some other pastors this week, if I play my cards right, I'll never have to teach on that passage again in my entire life. <laughs> and, if, and if you went back to it and read through, you can see why. A lot of head scratching. Well, this morning we're going to continue on, and, and we're just kind of making our way through this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth, a very cosmopolitan, kind of hip city. They were affluent and culturally diverse and uh, the church was talented and vibrant, but sometimes some of that vibrant energy ended up by going the wrong direction, and he ends up by having to correct them. And so we've seen him be firm and be gentle. This morning, we're going to take a look into the VIP room. I don't know if you've, some of you, you've got like one of those fancy flight cards, or you fly so much, you've got all the points, you go into the little clubs, you know, in the airport. I, I, I don't. I don't, I, don't, I don't even know what they do in there. It must be cool, though. VIPs. I don't know if, if, if you get to be a VIP, if you've been a VIP at something. I never have. I did see a VIP once. Actually, it was this week on TV. It was the news, and one of these news reporters was actually right down in the battle zone where some terrorist activity had been going on and all kinds of bad stuff. And so he had a flak jacket on. Normally he's all, you know, buttoned down. And this time he's got this flak jacket on, this big old helmet, and he's reporting from this dangerous spot. And on the back of his helmet, in big letters, big like, like reflective letters, V-I-P. And I thought, I don't know if I would want that, that helmet. <laughs> You know, very imperiled person, right? I mean, if, if you're a terrorist and you want to make an impact, take this guy out first. <laughs> Not my idea of a VIP. I don't know if the word, for me, the words communion and VIP really don't belong together. There shouldn't be a VIP room at, at the communion table, and we're going to be taking those elements together today. Which is why this passage is interesting and it deserves some attention. So, if you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to start in verse 17. Now, Paul has been addressing quite a few things so far. In fact, he just finished talking to men and women about how women should be dressed and how they should behave in worship. And it was kind of touchy and kind of some difficult things to understand. And, and, and if we look back... Even though much of what he said was kind of hard to understand and, and, and hard to figure out what to do about, even there he was being kind of open and generous. He even said, you know, and if, if somebody's got a problem with this, this is as much as I can tell you. He, he was kind of gentle compared to this next section. He starts out this section, he says, Now, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. That, it, that's never good when the talk starts out like that. For your meetings do more harm than good. What meeting is he talking about? He's talking about church, folks. All of a sudden he goes, actually, now i got to tell you something. Your, your church services are doing more harm than good. How in the world is that even possible? 
In fact, this is the harshest thing he's ever said to them. In fact, I'm not sure that it's not the harshest thing he ever said, period. And later in this passage, he's going to say that God is judging them, and some are sick, and some have already died because of this. <laughs> and, and this just blows our mind, right? I mean, when he started the letter to the Corinthians, he was addressing a church that was divided. They had their favorite preachers and their very favorite teachers, and they were on little clubs and cliques. When he was addressing that kind of division, he didn't say anything this harsh. When he was addressing the fact that uh, there was immorality going on amongst, in the church and they were proud of it instead of correcting it, he didn't talk this harsh to them. When they were dragging each other to court in front of unsaved judges, he didn't talk this harshly to them. In fact, when there was even idolatry going on amongst people in the church, he didn't talk this harsh. What in the world is he talking about that would prompt this harsh a response? They were messing up communion. Does that just seem a little, like, disproportionate? They're messing up communion. You know, the little cup, little bread. So throughout this, this, this little this few minutes we spend looking at this, we're going to have to wrestle with why in the world would Paul see that as so much more serious than anything he's addressed? In the first place, he says, verse 18, I hear that when you come together as a church that there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Now, here he's not talking about, it's a little, you know, we're used to hearing about divisions, and now he brings up divisions again. He's actually addressing a, a different kind of division. Earlier it was this favorites, you know, and cliques. But here he's, he's identifying different behaviors, he says, you guys are going two different directions, and it's interesting what he says. He goes, actually, I guess that has to happen. There have to be some people who are choosing wrong, and there have to be others who know better and are choosing right. In a sense, he's saying, there has to be a little tension in church. Unless all of you are getting it right all the time, there has to be some tension. The purpose of that is so that God can point out who it is that has his approval. So then, verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. That's what they thought they were doing, is celebrating the Lord's Supper. He goes, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another one gets drunk. Don't you have, home, your own, have homes of your own, basically, to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Now, this deserves a little bit of explanation. It's important for us to know that they didn't observe the Lord's table the way we do. There were no little cups in sight. Okay, no little mini... Not, they didn't do it at all like we do. In fact... Much like 
the culture around them, most worship in that day and age involved some kind of a banquet or a festival. And it, and it made sense in terms of when you think about travel and those kind of things. You, when, when people have to, it, it's difficult. They can't just hop in their car and drive to church. So when they do gather together, they're going to be there for a while. There needs to be food. And often banquets or food service will be a part of that. And often, as we learned earlier about meat offered to idols, some of that meat would be offered as part of the offering. Anyway, so the, so the, the setting is banquet. So for us, I think the, the closest thing we could talk about would be like, like the church picnic. All right, which was a great time, by the way. That was awesome. And there's this huge spread of food, and everybody brought something to share, and we're all there together. And then in that setting somewhere, they were all called to attention, and, and they would have prayer. They would have teaching, perhaps. They would take the Lord's Supper as part of that uh, celebration. Something maybe we'll do next church picnic. But I guess we could think of a potluck. Now, in their day, there was no church building. And there weren't many pavilion, parks and pavilions. So usually this would happen at whoever in the church, the little house churches, right, spread around the city. And whoever had the biggest house would probably host it. In this case, it was probably Gaius. He was like the, he worked in the temple. He, he, he was pretty well known in town. And, but whoever, they went to the biggest house and they all brought something to eat and they were supposed to have a service together. Now, here, here's where... Here's where it starts to go off the tracks. In the church in Corinth, there were slaves. That's like people who worked for a living, like the rest of us, okay? <laughs> there were slaves. There were poor folks who, who barely eked out whatever they could, just day by day, week by week. And there were also people who were affluent, uh, the home in which they met, perhaps. But there's something about the folks who are affluent. You see, if you're affluent, you can afford to take the day off. Or if you're the boss, if you own the company, you can say, hey, I'm cutting out early because we're having a big church shindig. And so you get to leave early. Kind of like some of you poor saps who, you know, you have to come to the men's retreat and you get up there by like 1230 in the morning, like, right? Because the rest of us took the day off and we're having fun. And you just came out of work and just barely dragged yourself up there. So some got out early. Some could get there. And guess what? If you haven't noticed this about church potlucks, not all food is equal. <laughs> we could tell stories about that for hours. I try to eat a piece of fried chicken that my wife makes before we leave the house because I will not see another piece of chicken. It's gone. At another one, I went, I think it was, I don't know, sweet potatoes or whatever. It looked exactly like my wife's. You know, and it was like, whoa, and they do it different, you know. <laughs> so just like us, some would bring magnificent food. And others had to stop at Wegmans on the way. Had to stop at Giant. It's the best I could do. I had to work. And here's the problem. And, and honestly, I, I understand that at first this sounds a little petty. But the folks who were wealthy and the folks who were influential, the folks who could bring the fancy food, they just went ahead and ate once they got there. With the other peeps who were wealthy and influential. And by the time the rest of us poor schmucks got there with our Wegmans and giant containers, 
you, you know what those empty casserole dishes look like. Like, was this that sausage thing? The one with the peppers and the cheese? You know? <laughs> I love that. All the good stuff's gone. And all the good wine is gone. And the people that were there early, now they're a little buzzed. Which, by the way, kind of mitigates against the idea of like grape juice instead of wine. I mean, that's a lot of grape juice if they were drunk. That's a lot of grape juice. Okay. So here is this celebration that's supposed to be a celebration that in Jesus we are one body. And at, in the very celebration of it itself, they're actually sending the exact opposite message. In fact, it's so striking that Paul uses that word, humiliate. Can you imagine if you just barely make it to the church picnic and you remember, oh, I said I would bring something, and you swing in the giant, and you grab something, and you say, like, these look nice. Can you imagine if people were kind of snickering and laughing as you brought it? Can you imagine how it feels when, you know, after the whole thing's over, the, the, the container wasn't even opened? You know what, maybe next time, why, why did I bust my chops getting here? Can you feel that? And can you feel how others are like, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, I got off. I got some food. I came here. We ate some. I mean, realize how hard it would be to get someone to understand the offense when they don't want to understand the offense. Part of the problem here is that this kind of division, this socioeconomic division, this culture divide, it was perfectly normal. In fact, if you watch it happen, you say, well, that makes sense. I mean, you can get off early. You can't. Buy nice food. You can't. You're hungry, so you eat, and you don't. And it actually makes perfect sense. In fact, it's almost completely normal and natural. They were used to this. In fact, you almost get the sense that those who arrived early, they kind of all knew they were arriving early. Hey, yeah, I got it. Okay, yeah. Look at it. And it just doesn't even occur to them to wait and include those who are coming later. You see, they were acting like they were just a normal, random group of people gathering together, like any other group. Everything from, I don't know, whatever, your Qantas club, VFW, um, your HOA, I don't know, whatever club, whatever you gather together, they were just acting like normal people. They weren't acting like a group of people who had been drawn together by Jesus Christ. So what we're going to learn is that the gospel, and specifically the gospel as it's found in the Lord's table, it creates a very different type of people, a very unique group of people. The rules that apply to regular life shouldn't apply to it because of the way they were formed. So now Paul's going to remind them of what that message of the gospel was because they recited this every time they took the Lord's table. They just weren't living it out. For I received from the Lord 
what I also passed on to you. But by the way, we could kind of pause there for a moment. You want to write that verse, that, just that verse, that much on a card. That is how Christian ministry happens. First, we receive from the Lord, and then we pass it on to someone else. That's always that kind of give and take that happens in the life of every believer as we try to minister to one another. We can't minister to someone else if we haven't received it ourselves. We receive it ourselves, then we pass it on. That's true what Paul is saying even in this passage. What I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How interesting it is, right? That at the very time it, that Jesus was being betrayed, he was making a way of communion for us. It says he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, there are, there are churches, there are faiths, there are groups of people who teach that something kind of mysterious and magical happens here with these elements. And I just want to point out that, that in this passage, when Jesus talks about this, it's, it seems pretty clear that nothing magical was happening to that bread or the cup since he was actually still in his body. So the most logical reading of that is simply that he's saying, this doesn't become my body because my body is still here. This is symbolic of what my body is. And it doesn't take anything away from the elements. But sometimes we want people to know, hey, as you eat this little cracker, no magic crackers here, no magic juice. All the magic, all the power is in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And he says, this, is the new, the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do you notice, he says, bread, we would say bread and wine. He says bread and cup. Well, okay, well, cup kind of stands in for the drink, but it's funny, why would, he dresses the bread, not the plate, or whatever it comes on, but here he says the cup. And if, and if you want, if you're a student, if you'd like to go chase something down in the scriptures, the Old Testament talks about God's, cup of wrath being poured out. And Jesus says the Messiah was going to endure that cup and offer instead a new cup. There's some really cool things to, to chase down. I'll let you chase that down on your own. But he says this is a new covenant in my blood. New covenant. See, to us it means nothing. But Israel had been a covenant people. Their whole Existence was based on a promise between them and God. And now Jesus inaugurates a new covenant. But this isn't the first time a new covenant has been mentioned. You see, the prophets promised that one day 
God would establish a new kind of agreement with his people. You think about the covenant that God made with Abraham, that he would bless Abraham, that he would give him uh, progeny, children, and that he would put them in the land. And yet, they really blew that. As they disobeyed, as they didn't follow his commands, he ended up by having to punish and discipline them rather than just be able to fulfill that. But you see, the prophet said that one day God's going to establish a new covenant with his people. Jeremiah 31 talks about that. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them from by the, by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people no longer Will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. You see, Jesus was about to go to the cross and establish a completely new relationship to God. One that was based in grace alone where all our wickedness and sin can be forgiven. And as they were taking elements, remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made, they were acting like no change had occurred at all. Have you ever seen religious people who weren't really that nice? Mm. Sometimes, I mean, I know people that know far no more Bible than I do. But they, that doesn't mean they were necessarily nice people. Jesus died to make his people one people. And the very first thing that should not show up amongst those people is this kind of petty division over rich, poor, early, late, privileged or not. How serious was that lack of distinction from the world around them? How big a deal was that to God? And that's the shock for us this morning. Verse 22 in 1 Corinthians 11, he says this, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Wow. An unworthy manner. What does that mean? Now, if you've come to church for a while and you've taken the Lord's table, you've done this, you kind of probably have gotten the impression that what that means is we're supposed to deal with sin. You've gotten that impression because I will say it. We encourage each other to, to sort of check, do a gut check. How can we celebrate him dying for our sins and then we're still kind of nurturing little pet sins? And that's not inaccurate. But in this context, that's not the primary thing Paul's referring to. 
He says, when you take this in an unworthy manner, by the way, unworthy, it's uh, for, I, I know all of you are wondering, and, you, and you're right, it's an adverb. <laughs> yeah. And basically the reason that's important is because he's not saying you're unworthy people. All you unworthy people, you shouldn't be taking the Lord's, no, what he's saying is you're doing it in an unworthy way. You're not doing it right. What does he mean by unworthy? Well, in verse 28, he says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat, the, and, eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So, whatever unworthy manner means, it's, it's the same as without discerning the body and blood of Christ. Without discerning the body and blood of Christ. What does that mean? For you and I today, when we take these elements, what does that mean? I'm holding this little cracker. I'm holding a little cup. Discern the body and blood of Christ. Well, perhaps we should ask ourselves, As we hold these elements, think back. Let our, imagines, our imaginations become vivid and alive. Where was Christ's body? Where did that blood drip? One of the things we do here is we, we remember vividly that he hung on a cross at the hands of evil men enduring violence and for no reason other than he was atoning for our sin. Yeah. Looking back, we can discern the body and blood of Christ. We are reminded what he did. Taking the Lord's table can be a celebrative experience, but, but it usually doesn't start that way because, because of this. Discerning the body and blood of the Lord. We would be making a huge mistake if we took these elements without trying to remind each other that Jesus' body was hanging there. He was in agony as his blood was spilt. But is that the only place where the body and blood of Christ exist? See, where was the body of Christ hanging on the cross? But where is the body of Christ? You say, well, he rose and he ascended. True and wrong. Because, you see, what the New Testament teaches is that his body is right here. Discerning the body and blood of the Lord means more than just remembering that he died on the cross. That's back then. His body was there. His body is here. That's the back of his head that you're looking at. That's the shoulder that's next to you. 
in every sense, in the exact same way that his body was on the cross for you, his body is here now. If you believed that, if you believed that the person sitting next to you was actually Jesus in disguise, wouldn't you like to like, get a second chance at the greeting time? <laughs> oh! Why was I sitting there playing with my phone? I should have got up and talked to him. I should have sat next to him. I'd sit in his lap. I'd follow him out the door. I'd get him coffee. I'd save him a seat. I'd ask him, is there anything I can do for you? Wouldn't you? So is that what I've done this morning? It goes on. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. What in the world does that mean? Well, oh, well actually, earlier we were saying, where was the body? Where is the body? And if that same kind of past and present thing is used here, then who was it back then that were sinning against the body and blood of the Lord? Well, certainly those people calling crucify him and those soldiers pounding those nails or that, that punisher with his whip and all those officials making sure it happened and even those people whose sins were being paid for. You see, if we don't remember this morning that his body was broken, his blood shed, we act just like we did before we ever knew him. We act just like those who were calling out against him. We sin against his body and his blood. But what about now? What about this body? His body is here now. And we sin against the body. If, if we don't approach this table with the heart that is appropriate, we sin against one another. We devalue each other. We say, oh, I just love Jesus. You, however, are irritating me. How many times a week should we stop? when we're interacting with a Christian, another brother or sister in Christ, and say to yourself, Jesus, if you're in there, you are not going to, no, no, I'm going to love you anyway. Good try, but you are the body of Christ. There is nothing you can do to make me devalue you. You are getting on my nerves, <laughs> but I'm still going to love you, value you. How serious was this? This is where our mind, our head spins. That's why some of you among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's the euphemism. Christians die, they fall asleep. Does Jesus really do that? Of course, we could go back there. There are some of those stories in the scriptures. Think about Ananias and Sapphira or others that the Lord judged and 
Paul says it is happening in Corinth right now. But, but, but certainly, certainly Jesus, being all loving and all, he would never do that now, would he? Because we're not under the law. We're not under judgment. He would never judge me because he loves me. I'm kinda, I kind of have a get-out-of-jail-free card. I should act like a Christian, but even if I don't, I'm covered. Paul says, really? Oh, it's nothing for the Lord. <laughs> we joke a little bit. When I first met my wife, she was independent Baptist. <laughs> independent Baptist. Like, they didn't even like other Baptists. <laughs> and there was a long, unwritten list of rules and things that you did not do. It just went on and on and on. In fact, I remember that they were against mixed bathing, for instance. And I was okay with that. I mean, that's... Mixed swimming was fine, but mixed bathing, that is a little weird. Just, uh, but no, but I remember there's this long list, and, and if you violated them, they had this kind of saying. Once in a while, they'd say, mm, Lord will take a loved one. And I remember thinking, what? Like the minute you break a rule, huh? Uncle Jed, don't, gone. <laughs> you know? Can you submit names for judgment? No, no, he just, God will take a loved one. <laughs> this idea of judgment, and I thought, that is so silly. That's not how God works. And then I come to this. Maybe the Baptists do know something. And Paul wants to make sure that they understand. You see... In just a bit, he's going to mention that this is not judgment like eternal judgment. This is discipline. The Lord disciplines the children he loves. While he's not very consistent, that's exactly right, he's not. Sometimes he shows grace. Would you like him to be consistent? Have you ever caught yourself saying, come on, God, you'll be more consistent? <laughs> a little voice says, careful. Careful. It's good that he's slow to anger. Paul says, would you, would you like to, would you, oh, I guess here's the offer. We're going to close up now before we go to the Lord's table. Would you like to get out of this alive? <laughs> we, we ordered Crossroads body bags. They're in the back. Because <laughs> we know some of you, you know, where's it? Would you like to get out of this alive? Would you like to escape God's judgment? Because there are some of us here, right, who have basically had exactly the same kind of attitude. I hang with the people that I like. I hang with the people who are like me. I hang with the people that I know better. And I don't hang with musicians. Or I don't hang with... Or I don't, and I just, and you know what? I just like it the way I, my group, my interests, my history. And of course, my people tend to be a little bit more like me, whatever that is. Rich, poor, skinny, wide, talkative, quiet. Some of us are guilty of that. Oh, I, I don't know who you are, but the Lord does. 
And what he's saying is, when you think like that, this is not a church, and this is not the Lord's Supper. But, he says, if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. If we were more discerning, what does he mean? More discerning in regard to ourselves. If you've got notes, I think I left some space there. Because, frankly, I would love, I wish we, I wish we had time right now. Just every little music in the background. And you think about it. What do you think that means? What, was, what does it mean for you to be a little more discerning concerning the body and blood of Christ? Nevertheless, when we're judged in this, by, by, by this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. He doesn't hate you. And because he loves you, he will not let you and I get away with it. So, brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Okay, you guys did pretty well at the, at the picnic. I mean, except for the line, right? There's a line. But apart from that, we all ate together. But what if, are we sure this is limited to just eating? I mean, nobody's going to get cheated on the communion today. You're all going to get the same little cracker. all get the same little cup. So we got that covered. No one's going to burn today. But is there some other way in which perhaps we are tempted to dishonor the body of Christ? Because we just can't be bothered with everybody. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it is not as a result, uh, this does not result in judgment. Here's the point. Take care of whatever you have to take care of before you come here so that when you come here, you're coming here for the right reason. Whew. Why do you come to church? Personally, I come because I have to. <laughs> when you only work one day a week, it's important that you show up on that day. <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, so many of you are complimentary. You love, you love Crossroads. We're so happy for that. Like, I love to go because I always am encouraged. Well, that's good. We're trying to encourage you. Or I always learn something new. It helps my spiritual life. And plus, the people, our people, they are just awesome. They just like, they just love on everybody. I just love going. That's all great. Doesn't that sound all great? Do you notice what's the common denominator? It's all about what you get. We're, we're so glad you come and we want to serve you. But once you're here and you're a part of Crossroads, the reason to come to church is not to get. When you're getting ready at home, do you think to yourself, do I have everything I need so that I can worship God and make him smile? Because i got like an hour to tell God with everybody else that he's awesome. I've got to get my voice warmed up. Me, 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 me. I'm going to sing. I'm gonna. I've been saving up all week. I'm going to give this. And I wish I could give more because you can't outgive God. I can't wait. I can't wait to get into that class of 18-month-olds or whatever, right? <laughs> 
Is that why you come? Do you come? You say to yourself, I, I, I'm going to be on the lookout. I'm hoping to talk to somebody that nobody ever talks to. I'm hoping I can encourage somebody who's like almost invisible. I want to make time for somebody that nobody makes time for. And I hope it hurts a little. I hope I actually missed talking to all my friends. I hope that happens because that's the least I can do. Jesus died for me. This actually isn't about me. That's what this table is about. He sat there and said, this is my body. This is my blood. Do this remembering that I died for you. And we look across left and right. Here we are. The body of Christ. So communion is a time to look backward. To remember vividly what Jesus did, what it must have been like. Holy imagination. It is a time to look inward. How can we celebrate his forgiveness for us, or his forgiveness of us, and still cherish these sins? We look inside and we see how vile they are, and we confess them. And we say, God, I need you to deliver me from this. But it doesn't stop there. We look backward and we look inward, but we also look across the row. Because the person sitting there is vital to you and me. Jesus died for them. He loves them. They are the very body of Christ. And I promise if he showed up here today, you would sit next to him. You would stroke him. Okay, don't stroke each other. That would be weird. But <laughs> you'd show such care, such respect. By the way, when the world watches a group of people act that way, when you can't figure out who's making six figures and six dollars, when you really can't tell that they're all hanging together and you're thinking, okay, what is the thing here? Now we're on the right track. Do you want to be a part of a church like that? Yes. Do you want to be loved like that? Yes. Well, then love like that because guess what? We have all been loved like. Let's pray. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I want to in invite you just to let these elements pass by. There's nothing rude about that at all. It makes no sense. You can't celebrate Jesus dying for you when you haven't yet come to faith that he died for you. Better yet, Put your faith in Jesus today. But for those of us who are Christians, if there's one thing we've heard Paul say, it's that we ought to be careful how we, uh, how we uh, come to this table. Oh, there's nothing magic about the bread and the cup. Oh, but what we do in our minds and our hearts in the next few minutes could be a matter of life and death. Because somewhere in this room, Jesus is sitting. 
and you and I don't know where he is. He died for me. Lord, deliver me and show me what it means to love. I'm going to invite the ushers to come and have a seat. Whoever's serving to come in. And as they come, let's pray. Lord Jesus, so now by your Spirit, we would hope to kind of go back in time, to be seated around that table with the disciples, to see your hands tearing bread and transforming that Passover meal into something that projects future grace to all of us, knowing that your body was going to be torn just as that bread was torn, knowing that you were going to drink the cup of the Father's wrath so that we would never know wrath. (coughs) Holy Spirit, guide us as we repent, as we think back and then repent of what exists, the things that we have tolerated, And we'll keep doing this until you come back for us. But while we are here, we actually still get a chance to love on your body. They're actually seated right amongst us. So Holy Spirit, speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.